0: Hi, everyone. This is Kevin Sykes bringing you another story from the American frontier. At one thousand one stories from the Old West, here you'll find stories about lawkeepers and lawbreakers, Indian fighters, prospectors, newspapermen, and others, written often by the men who lived during those times and others who wrote about it later. It was a wild time in what Congressman Davy Crockett called this breeches-bustin' country, and an important time in American history. We hope you enjoy tonight's story. Welcome back to 1001 Stories from the Old West. This is your host, Kevin Sykes. And today we have two different readings, both very much of a kind, in that they discuss the passing of the original citizens of the frontier country. One is The Passing of the Buffalo by Colonel Henry Inman from the book Tales of the Trail, originally published in 1917. And the other is Chief Seattle's speech. Without further ado, The Passing of the Buffalo by Colonel Henry Inman. To the old trapper and hunter of the palmy days of 68 and 70, I dedicate this chapter. That time has now faded into the past, and so far faded indeed, that the present generation knows not its sympathy nor its sentiment. The buffalo, as my thoughts turn to the past, the memory of their age, if I may so call it, crowds upon me. I remember when the eye could not measure their numbers. I saw a herd delay a railroad train from nine o'clock in the morning until five o'clock in the afternoon. Countless millions divided by its leaders and captains like an immense army. How many millions there were, none could guess. On each side of us, as far as we could see, our vision was limited only by the extending horizon of the flat prairie. The whole vast area was black with the surging mass of affrighted animals as they rushed onward to the south in a mad stampede. At another time, myself along with General Sheridan, Custer, and Sully rode through another herd, a larger one, for three consecutive days. This was in the fall of 1868. It seems almost impossible that those who have seen them, as numerous apparently as the sands of the seashore, feeding on the illimitable natural pastures of the Great Plains, that the buffalo should have become practically extinct. When I look back only 25 years and recall the fact that they swarmed in countless numbers, even then as far east as Fort Harker, only 200 miles west from the Missouri River, I ask myself, have they all disappeared? And yet, such is the fact. Two causes can be assigned for this great cataclysm. First, the demand for their hides, which brought about a great invasion of hunters into this region. And second, the crowds of thoughtless tourists who crossed the continent for the mere novelty and pleasure of the trip. This latter class killed heartlessly for the excitement of the new experience as they rode along in the cars at a low rate of speed, often never touching a particle of the flesh of their victims or possessing themselves of a single robe. While the former, numbering hundreds of old frontiersmen, all expert shots, with thousands of novices, the pioneer settlers on the public domain, day after day for years made it a lucrative business to kill for the robes alone, a market for which had suddenly sprung up all over the country. The beginning of the end was marked by the completion of the Kansas Pacific, across the plains to the foothills of the Rockies in 1868, this being the western limit of the Buffalo Range. In 1872, a writer in the Buffalo Land said, quote, Probably the most cruel of all bison-shooting pastimes is that of firing from the cars. During certain periods in the spring and fall when the large herds are crossing the Kansas Pacific Railroad, the trains run for a hundred miles or more among the countless thousands of the shaggy monarchs of the plains. The bison has a strange and entirely unaccountable instinct or habit which leads it to attempt crossing in front of Any moving object near it. It frequently happened in the time of the old stages that the drivers had to rein up his horse until the herd which he had started had crossed the road ahead of him. To accomplish this feat, if the object of their fright was rapidly moving, the animals would often run for miles. When the iron horse comes rushing into their solitudes and snorting out his fierce alarms, the herds, though perhaps half a mile from his path, will lift their heads and gaze intently for a few minutes toward the object thus approaching them with a roar which causes the earth to tremble and enveloped in a white cloud that streams further and higher than the dust of the old stagecoach ever did. And then, having determined its course, instead of fleeing back to the distant valleys, away they go, charging over the ridge across which the iron rails lie, Apparently determined to cross in front of the locomotive at all hazards. The rate per mile of the passenger trains is slow upon the plains, and hence it often happens that the cars and buffaloes will be side by side for a mile or two, the brutes abandoning the effort to cross only when their foe has emerged entirely ahead. During these races, the car windows are opened and numerous breech loaders fling hundreds of bullets among the densely crowded and fast-flying masses. Many of the poor animals fall and more go off to die in the ravines. The train speeds on and the act is repeated every few miles until buffalo land is passed. Almost with a prophetic eye, he continues, let this slaughter continue for 10 years and the bison of the American continent will become extinct. The number of valuable robes and pounds of meat, which would thus be lost to us in posterity, will run too far into the millions to be easily calculated. All over the plains, lying in disgusted masses of putrefaction along the valley and hill, are strewn immense carcasses of wantonly slain buffalo. They line the Kansas-Pacific Road, for two hundred miles. A great herd of buffaloes on the plains in the early days, when one could approach near enough without disturbing it to quietly watch its organization, and the apparent discipline, which its leaders seemed to exact, was a very curious sight. Among the striking features of the spectacle was the apparent uniform manner in which the immense mass of shaggy animals moved, There was constancy of action, indicating a degree of intelligence to be found only in the most intelligent of the brute creation. Frequently, the larger herd was broken up into many smaller ones, that traveled relatively close together, each led by an independent master. Perhaps only a few rods marked the dividing line between them, but it was always unmistakably plain, and each moved synchronously in the direction in which all were going. The leadership of the herd was attained only by hard struggles for the place. Once reached, however, the victor was immediately recognized and kept his authority until some new aspirant overcame him, or he became superannuated and was driven out of the herd to meet his inevitable fate, a prey to those ghouls of the desert, the gray wolves. In the event of a stampede, every animal of the separate yet consolidated herds rushed off together, as if all had gone mad at once. For the buffalo, like the Texas steer, mule, or domestic horse, stampedes at the slightest provocation, frequently without any assignable cause. Sometimes the simplest affair will start the whole herd, a prairie dog barking at the entrance of his burrow, A shadow of one of themselves or that of a passing cloud is sufficient to make them run for miles as if a real and dangerous enemy were at their heels. Stampedes were a great source of profit to the Indians of the plains. The Comanches were particularly expert and daring in this kind of robbery. They even trained their horses to run from one point to another in expectation of the coming of the wagon trains on the trail. When a camp was made that was nearly in range, They turned their trained animals loose, which at once flew across the prairie, passing through the herd and penetrating the very corrals of their victims. All of the picketed horses and mules would endeavor to follow these decoys and were invariably led right into the haunts of the Indians, who easily secured them. Young horses and mules were easily frightened, and in the confusion which generally ensued, great injury was frequently done to the runaways themselves. At times when the herd was very large, the horses scattered over the prairie and were irrevocably lost, and such as did not become wild fell prey to the wolves. That fate was very frequently the lot of stampeded horses bred in the States. They, not having been trained by a prairie life to care for themselves, instead of stopping and bravely fighting off the bloodthirsty beasts, they would run, then the whole pack would be sure to leave the bolder animals and make for the runaways, which they seldom fail to overtake and dispatch. Now we'll take a little break to hear a word from our sponsors. Welcome back, and now we'll continue with the passing of the buffalo. Like an army, a herd of buffalo put out scouts to give the alarm in case anything beyond the ordinary occurred. These sentinels were always to be seen in groups of four or five and even six at some distance from the main body. When they saw something approaching that the herd should be aware of or get away from, they started on the run directly for the center of the great mass of their peacefully grazing brothers. Meanwhile, the young bulls, were on duty as sentinels on the edge of the main herd, watching the scouts. At the moment the latter made for the center, the former raised their heads, and in the peculiar manner of their species, grazed all around and sniffed the air as if they could smell both the danger and its direction. Should there be something which their instinct told them to guard against, the leader took his position in front. The cows and calves crowded in the center while the rest of the males gather on the flanks and in the rear, indicating a gallantry that might be imitated at times by the genus Homo. Generally, buffalo went to their drinking place but once a day, and that late in the afternoon. Then they ambled along, following each other in single file, which accounts for the many trails on the plains, always ending in some stream or lake. They frequently traveled 20 or 30 miles for water. So the trails leading to it were often worn to the depth of a foot or more. That curious depression so frequently seen on the Great Plains, called a buffalo wallow, is caused in this way. The huge animals paw and lick the salty alkaline earth, and when once the sod is broken, the loose soil drifts away under the constant action of the wind. Then, year after year, through more pawing, licking, rolling, and wallowing by the animals, The wind wafts more of the soil away, and soon there is a considerable hole in the prairie. Many an old trapper and hunter's life has been saved by following a buffalo trail when he was suffering from thirst. The buffalo wallows usually retain a great quantity of water, and they have often saved the lives of whole companies of cavalry, both men and horses. There was, however, a stranger and more wonderful spectacle to be seen every recurring spring during the reign of the buffalo. Soon after the grass had started, there were circles trodden bare on the plain, thousands, yes, millions of them, which the early travelers, who did not divine their cause, called fairy rings. From the first of April until the middle of May was the wet season you could depend upon its recurrence almost as certainly as on the sun and moon rising at the proper time. This was also the calving period of the buffalo, as they, unlike our domestic animals, only rutted during a single month. Consequently, the cows all calved during a certain time. This was the wet month, and as there was a great many gray wolves that roamed singly and in immense packs over the whole prairie region, the bulls, in their regular beats kept guard over the cows in the act of mothering, and drove the wolves away, walking in a ring around the females at a short distance, thus forming the curious circles. In every herd, at each recurring season, there were always ambitious young bulls that came to their majority, so to speak, and these were ever ready to test their claims for the leadership, so that it may be safely stated that that a month rarely passed without a bloody battle between them for the supremacy, though strangely enough, the struggle seldom resulted in the death of either combatant. Perhaps there is no animal in which maternal love is more strongly developed than in the buffalo cow. She is as dangerous with a calf by her side as a she-grizzly with cubs. The buffalo bull that has outlived his usefulness is one of the most pitiable objects in the whole range of natural history. Old age has probably been decided in the economy of buffalo life as the unpardonable sin. Abandoned to his fate, he may be discovered in his dreary isolation near some stream or lake where it does not tax him too severely to find good grass. For he is now feeble, and exertion, an impossibility. In this new stage of his existence, He seems to have completely lost his courage. Frightened at his own shadow or the rustling of a leaf, he is the very incarnation of nervousness and suspicion. Gregarious in his habits from birth, solitude, foreign to his whole nature, has changed him into a new creature, and his inherent terror for the most trivial things is intensified to such a degree that if a man were compelled to undergo such constant alarm, it would probably drive him insane in less than a week. Nobody ever saw one of these miserable and forlorn creatures dying a natural death or even heard of such an occurrence. The cowardly coyote and the gray wolf had already marked him for their own and they rarely missed their calculations. Rising suddenly to the top of a divide with a party of friends in 1866, we saw standing below us in the valley an old buffalo bull, the very picture of despair. Surrounding him were seven gray wolves in the act of challenging him to mortal combat. The poor beast, undoubtedly realizing the hopelessness of his situation, had determined to die game. His great shaggy head, filled with burrs, was lowered to the ground as he confronted his would-be executioners. His tongue, black and parched, lolled out of his mouth and he gave utterance at intervals to a suppressed roar. The wolves were sitting on their haunches in a semicircle, immediately in front of the tortured beast, and every time that the fear-stricken buffalo gave vent to his hoarsely modulated groan, the wolves howled in concert, in most mournful cadence. After contemplating his antagonist for a few moments, the bull made a dash at the nearest wolf, tumbling him howling over the silent prairie but while this diversion was going on in front the remainder of the pack started for his hind legs to hamstring him upon this the poor beast turned to the point of attack only to receive a repetition of it in the same vulnerable place by the wolves who had as quickly turned also and fastened themselves on his heels again His hindquarters now streamed with blood, and he began to show signs of great physical weakness. He did not dare to lie down. That would have been instantly fatal. By this time, he had killed two or three of the wolves, or so maimed them that they were entirely out of the fight. At this juncture, the suffering animal was mercifully shot, and the wolves allowed to batten on his thin and tough carcass. And with that, we conclude the passing of the buffalo from the book Tales of the Trail by Colonel Henry Inman, originally published in 1917. And now we'll be reading Chief Seattle's speech. Chief Seattle was a chief of the Sonomish tribe in the Puget Sound area. The speech itself is purportedly from the 1854 negotiations with then Governor Isaac Stevens, though the speech was not documented until nearly a quarter century later by Dr. Henry Smith, being his notes on the translation. Whether or not these are the very words of Chief Seattle, the sentiment shared is sincere, noble, haunting, and prophetic. And now... Chief Seattle. Yonder sky that has wept tears of compassion on our fathers for centuries untold, and which to us appears changeless and eternal, may change. Today it is fair, tomorrow it may be overcast with clouds. My words are like the stars that never set. What Seattle says, the great Chief Washington can rely upon with as much certainty as our pale-faced brothers can rely upon the return of the seasons. The son of the white chief says his father sends us greetings of friendship and goodwill. This is kind, for we know he has little need of our friendship in return, because his people are many. They are like the grass that covers vast prairies, while my people are few, and they resemble the scattering trees of a storm-swept plain. The great and I presume also good white chief sends us word that he wants to buy our lands but is willing to allow us enough land to live on comfortably. This indeed appears generous for the red man no longer has rights that he need respect and the offer may be wise also for we are no longer in need of a great country. There was a time when our people covered the whole land as the waves of a wind-ruffled sea cover its shell-paved floor. But that time has long since passed away with the greatness of tribes now almost forgotten. I will not mourn over our untimely decay, nor reproach my pale-faced brothers with hastening it, for we too may have been somewhat to blame. When our young men grow angry at some real or imaginary wrong, and disfigure their faces with black paint, their hearts also are disfigured and turn black. And then their cruelty is relentless and knows no bounds, and our old men are not able to restrain them. But let us hope that the hostilities between the red man and his pale-faced brothers may never return. We would have everything to lose and nothing to gain. True it is that revenge with our young braves is considered gain, even at the cost of their own lives. But old men who stay at home in times of war, and old women who have sons to lose, know better. Our great father at Washington, for I presume he is now our father as well as yours, since George has moved his boundaries to the north. Our great and good father, I say, sends us word by his son who no doubt is a great chief among his people, that if we do as he desires, he will protect us. His brave armies will be to us a bristling wall of strength, and his great ships of war will fill our harbors so that our ancient enemies far to the northward, the Simsians and the Hydus, will no longer frighten our women and old men. Then he will be our father, and we will be his children." But can this ever be? Your God loves your people and hates mine. He folds his strong arms lovingly around the white man and leads him as a father leads his infant son. But he has forsaken his red children. He makes your people wax strong every day and soon they will fill the land while my people are ebbing away like a fast receding tide that will never flow again. The white man's God cannot love his red children or he would protect them. They seem to be orphans and can look nowhere for help. How then can we become brothers? How can your father become our father and bring us prosperity and awaken in us dreams of returning greatness? Your God seems to us to be partial. He came to the white man. We never saw him never even heard his voice. He gave the white man laws, but had no word for his red children whose teeming millions filled this vast continent as the stars filled the firmament. No, we are two distinct races and must ever remain so. There is little in common between us. The ashes of our ancestors are sacred and their final resting place is hallowed ground while you wander away from the tombs of your fathers, seemingly without regret. Your religion was written on tables of stone by the iron finger of an angry god, lest you might forget it. The red man could never remember nor comprehend it. Our religion is the tradition of our ancestors, the dreams of our old men, given to them by the great spirit, and the visions of our shaman, and it's written in the hearts of our people. Your dead cease to love you and the homes of their nativity as soon as they pass the portals of the tomb. They wander far off beyond the stars, are soon forgotten and never return. Our dead never forget the beautiful world that gave them being. They still love its winding rivers, its great mountains and its sequestered vales, and they ever yearn in tenderest affection over the lonely-hearted living and often return to visit and comfort them. Day and night cannot dwell together. The red man has ever fled the approach of the white man as the changing mists on the mountainside flee before the blazing morning sun. However, your proposition seems a just one, And I think that my folks will accept it and will retire to the reservation you offer them. And we will dwell apart and in peace. For the words of the great white chief seem to be the voice of nature speaking to my people out of the thick darkness that is fast gathering around them in a dense fog floating inward from a midnight sea. It matters but little where we pass the remnant of our days. They are not many. The Indian's night promises to be dark. No bright star hovers about the horizon. Sad-voiced winds moan in the distance. Some grim nemesis of our race is on the red man's trail, and wherever he goes, he will still hear the sure approaching footsteps of the fell destroyer and prepare to meet his doom, as does the wounded doe that hears the approaching footsteps of the hunter. A few more moons... A few more winters, and not one of all the mighty hosts that once filled this broad land or that now roam in fragmentary bands through these vast solitudes will remain to weep over the tombs of a people once as powerful and as hopeful as your own. But why should we repine? Why should I murmur at the fate of my people? Tribes are made up of individuals and are no better than they. Men come and go like waves of the sea, a tear, a dirge, and they're gone from our longing eyes forever. Even the white man whose God walked and talked with him as friend to friend is not exempt from the common destiny. We may be brothers after all, we shall see. We will ponder your proposition, and when we have decided we will tell you, but but should we accept it, I here and now make this first condition that we will not be denied the privilege without molestation of visiting at will the graves of our ancestors and friends. Every part of this country is sacred to my people. Every hillside, every valley, every plain and grove has been hallowed by some fond memory or some sad experience of my tribe. Even the rocks that seem to lie dumb as they swelter in the sun along the silent seashore in solemn grandeur, thrill with memories of past events connected with the fate of my people. And the very dust under your feet Responds more lovingly to our footsteps than to yours, because it is the ashes of our ancestors, and our bare feet are conscious of the sympathetic touch for the soil is rich with the life of our kindred. the sable braves and fond mothers and glad-hearted the sable braves and fond mothers and glad-hearted maidens, and the little children who lived and rejoiced here and whose very names are now forgotten, still love these solitudes, and their deep fastnesses at eventide grow shadowy with the presence of dusky spirits. And when the last red man shall have perished from the earth, and his memory among white men shall have become a myth, these shores shall swarm with the invisible dead of my tribe. And when your children's children shall think themselves alone in the field, The store, the shop, upon the highway, or in the silence of the woods, they will not be alone. In all the earth, there is no place dedicated to solitude. At night, when the streets of your cities and villages shall be silent, and you think them deserted, they will throng with the returning host that once filled and still love this beautiful land. The white man will never be alone. Let him be just and deal kindly with my people, for the dead are not altogether powerless. And that ends the haunting and prophetic speech of Chief Seattle. Join us again next week as we take another reading of the Old West, written by one of its contemporaries. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Stories from the Old West. Be sure to leave us a rating and review on Apple and subscribe at whatever podcast service you use. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And of course, you can support us on Patreon. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Bueno, bye. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Stories from the Old West. If you enjoyed this episode, please do send us a review. This is your host, Kevin Sykes, speaking on behalf of the 1001 Stories Network. Take care, and we'll be back soon with a brand new story.